There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned into this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Today's guest is Johnny Light, ex-mafia enforcer for Gotti's Gambino crime family, author, actor, political commentator, and youth advocate speaker. As a boy, John was born to a life of organized crime. As a man, he realized there's a better way to live his life, and he strives to move forward from his regretful past. When he shares his story to his audiences, he hopes to show people how they can take control of their futures and choose to be the best version of themselves. A born and bred New Yorker, John gives back to his community by sharing his story about his past life as a top hitman for John Gotti and the Gambino crime family to thousands of high school and college students all over the world each year. He tells the real-life pitfalls of where that life leads, which is far different than what the media portrays. He speaks up about how he has changed his life after his doing numerous prison stints for his involvement in the mafia, and has now dedicated his life to talking to kids and young adults about avoiding the dangers of living a life of crime. John A. Light has written, co-authored, or been the subject of several books, including Gotti's Rules, Prison Rules, Darkest Hour, Mafia International, and Death Haven. John A. Light, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate you having me. You know, we've had about 120 shows here, and I've read off some intros and bios of folks, you know, for 120 times. That's a pretty lengthy one, but very different. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation today, so I appreciate your time. You were born into a life of organized crime. How so? Tell us about your family and your upbringing. Correct. I come from uh, Albanian. I'm Albanian descent. My family was uh, my father, my grandfather, everybody migrated from uh, Albania. And it was a communist country. Uh, they came here, understood the difficulties of coming to another country, starting a new life. Uh, fortunately for us, my grandfather was a hard worker in the uh, restaurant business. And my dad uh, became a product of his environment. Became, he didn't go to school. Third grade was the end of that. Uh, became a gambler, grew up in uh, Lower East Side. Delancey and Rivington, where guys like Vito Genovese were uh, born in those same areas. So he knew these guys as kids and he got involved with the gangsters. Him him himself wasn't a a violent guy, but a street guy, gambler, and hung around with these guys. Is it fair to assume that many, if not most, children of mobsters don't go into organized crime? Yeah, there's, there's, I, I guess there's a percentage that do and a percentage that don't. I, you know, my own belief is uh, the mafia and nepotism, like anything else in sports, uh, is what polluted the diluted, excuse me, the uh, the pool of uh, top mobsters and how the downfall of the mob by allowing some of these young kids to come in and didn't grow up hardcore like their dads. And what drew you to choose that vocation or, or lifestyle? I, I just think that I just, you know, I know excuses about my life. I don't like to make excuses. Uh, it was the opportunity that was in front of me. Uh, it was a product of my environment. My baseball coach uh, and his kids were the uh, top uh, Gambino uh, captains in our neighborhood, ran the neighborhood, the father, and then the sons later on actually uh, had a lot of pull in the neighborhood because of their father. Um, they stayed with me. 
guys like that stayed with me since I'm a kid. My young girlfriend at 10 years old, her uh, uncle and father were also Lucchese gangsters. So it was around me, and uh, I ended up going to card games as, as, as early as four or five years old with my father down in the Bronx with the famous Charlie Luciano's uh, first cousin, Blackie Charlie Luciano, also a made guy in the Gambino family. So these guys were the guys I looked up to. Did you view it as a job or a lifestyle or both? Uh, originally, I, I looked at it as a lifestyle. I loved it, right? I was a kid. It was I was enamored with, you know, people enamored with actors and ball players, and you know, I was a, a big ball player. But these guys uh, were on another level. They got such respect everywhere we went. I could tell people just. I didn't understand the fear part of it at, at that at that age. You know, but I understood that they were, wow, these guys got some treatment, uh, driving beautiful cars, always giving me money, dressing well. And uh, it, it grew me to uh, want to be like them. When did you commit your first crime and how did you feel afterward? <laughs> My first crime was stealing parking meters, I believe, as a kid. <laughs> and uh, I felt great because actually I was telling the story. The neighbor caught us. And we thought he was going to yell at us. And he was giving us tips on how to get rid of these meters because they were in front of people's houses. Back in those days, it were 10 cents meters. So I understood pretty you know, quickly that as long as you're not committing crimes against an individual, it's okay. And when did you commit your first violent crime? My first violent crime was uh, collecting for a, a, a gangster, my girlfriend's uncle, uh, George Gaddy. Uh, not Gotti Gaddy, and uh, he was a Lucchese uh, soldier. Uh, the neighborhood bookmaker, very swanky, dressed well. He had that Omar Shari look uh, with the cigarette out of his mouth, always dressed and drove nice cars. He asked me at the beginning, I was just a, a little runner back and forth, and then eventually he asked me to go see somebody for him, and I baseball batted him. I was, I was a kid, uh, 14, 15. Baseball batted him. You know, the, the thing was, and I've talked about this over the years, he was an older guy, and when he seen a kid, he just looked at me as a kid. I had no idea. I had a bat hidden behind me, and uh, I just started batting him because he owed money. He refused to pay with a lot of excuses, and I could have brought somebody with me, but I wanted to be uh, respected by him, by, by uh, George, and uh, so I batted him and surprised him to the guy. He didn't expect, and I tell people all the time, don't worry about the older guys for the most part. Worry about the kids. You know, and I was going to ask you, you know, how you felt afterwards and if you were doing it for respect, you know, especially at 14 years old, did you get the respect you're expecting? Yeah, I definitely did. I wanted to be part of that, and uh, I wanted people to know um, that I was friendly with these guys, whether it was uh, Fat Andy Ruggiano was kind of like the grandpa figure to me and my his son's my baseball coach and uh george gaddy that was the local bookmaker and all his runners were you know uh guys that started looking at me different than just a kid they were grooming me to be uh like them and uh also teaching me about the streets how to behave how to act how to talk how to be quiet were most of your crimes after that first one violent crimes yeah, my whole history of uh, my life has been uh, violence. Uh, whether I was a bookmaker or a drug dealer, 
a guy that robbed uh, drug dealers. It was always violence. How old were you when you first killed somebody? When I first killed somebody, I went on a drive along. I wasn't the shooter. Um, I was about 19. Prior to that, I also baseball batted somebody. So around that age, uh, I, I killed somebody by baseball batting uh, three bikers that were threatening a friend of mine and they wouldn't let him leave a bar. So it was, it was close between what age I was at both of those crimes. I don't know, but around that time I started uh, being very violent. Did you have any remorse after any of these crimes? Actually, I didn't. Um, I think that you block it out. I mean, as you get older, you get remorse. Um, You feel different than at the time you're in, which I would say the zone. Um, you don't want to recognize what you're doing. You don't even recognize uh, them as human beings. It's kind of like when I talk about it now, it's kind of weird. Like I'm not talking about myself. Like I'm speaking about another individual. And were you motivated? Were you motivated by the thrill of being somebody up, you know, for the money? Was it just a job? No, there's no thrill in it. I mean, there's adrenaline of uh, not getting caught, not getting hurt yourself. Uh, but I don't, I wouldn't say it's a thrill. I, I think, uh, I don't know what other people say. I think that would be a little bit of psychotic to get a thrill out of her, unless it was something very personal. I guess you get a thrill. I mean, there's people that I've hurt over people hurting family members of mine. And I don't know if it's the word thrill, but yeah, I wanted to hurt them. Um, so. And you're making big money. I get that. You know, was it about the money? Was it just a good living? Or did the violent behavior also fill some void or insecurity in you? I, I think it's a combination of all what you just said. I think there's got to be some sort of insecurity in you to be so violent that uh, somebody uh, somebody challenges your ego. Um, you, you go after them. As I got older and as I got away from this life, I learned to curb my ego and, and learn humility. It took me a long time. Uh, guys challenge me all the time. And I kind of smile at that, knowing they know my history and they know most likely I'm not going to react anymore. They know I have a different life. I mean, they can't be certain. It's like anything else. It's like poking a bear. Um, you might catch them at the wrong time. And and as far as I'm concerned, I have my, my emotions in check, my ego in check. I learned humility. I, I got a different life. But I could never say never completely. It's like an alcoholic. You just never know. When people knew that you were an enforcer, were they afraid to be around you? Uh, my friends, no. They knew that uh, I wouldn't uh, go after them or family if, unless they did something uh, where they were trying to set me up. If they were trying to set me up, they knew that I could turn it on and off. I had a switch. People used to say I was like Heckle and Jekyll and you know, uh, I would turn it on and off, depending on why I turned it on or off. But I didn't have that. I was always polite. I was never a, a bully. My father hated bullies, so he drilled that in my head. Unless I thought somebody was taking advantage of me or trying to hurt me or somebody around me, yeah, I could be violent, very violent quickly. You mentioned in the beginning of the show that you're of Albanian descent. And I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that the Italian mob families had an Albanian-American as an enforcer. How many non-Italians were in the mob in your day, and what sort of roles did they have? 
You had, uh, since the history of the mafia, had a, a lot of Jewish gangsters I've, I've spoken about over the years. You had Lepke and you had Bugsy Siegel and you had different guys like, like them that were very uh, famous gangsters. You had the Irish gang out of uh, the, West, the Westies out of New York. You had Jimmy Burke out of New York. Uh, Joe Watts, German. So you had a ton. And most of them, I, I'll tell you the truth, uh, were violent that I'm speaking about. Um, and I don't know if it's because the sense of proving ourselves and uh, showing that we're tougher and stronger than the people that we're working for, uh, or that's just the role we fit in because we're not Italian descent and uh, we can't get made that way. But our respect level comes from people fearing us. I was texting last night with a former colleague of mine, a uh, buddy of mine from Boston. His name is Todd. We call him the Todd Father. And he's Albanian, very proud Albanian. He's got a big tattoo on his shoulder. I remember he and I were at our famous steakhouse. I'm sorry, favorite steakhouse in Dallas, you know, pre-COVID. And all of a sudden he's like, see that guy? He's Albanian. See that guy? He's Albanian. So all of the servers there were Albanian. He's like, don't mess with any of them. And I'd never heard that before. The Albanians were, were involved in that. And he's like, no, no, no. And so then all of a sudden he flashes his tattoo and you know, all, all the food starts coming over and they, they treat us like kings just because he's, he's part of the family. So uh, I was very fascinated to learn that. So I'm looking at you now. You're in phenomenal shape. I've seen pictures of you back in the day, and you were really ripped. Something that occurred to me is that your method of coping with stress, working out, lifting weights all the time, actually would have made you better equipped to do the job of an enforcer. And it would have made you even more intimidating. Did that cross your mind at all? Or was working out in part, you know, deliberately done to accomplish, you know, sort of your mental stress release? I started off, my dad started us working out at you know, literally three, four, five years old, boxing, uh, running, uh, doing push-ups, uh, just a routine of exercise. He didn't want us to get bullied. Uh, and he also wants to be able to protect ourselves coming from a country we came from that was very aggressive. And it was a suppressed country for years. Um, most of the Albanians in my family were Muslim. I was Muslim as, uh, when I was born. So people in those days didn't know about Really, you didn't hear about the Muslim religion the way you do now or Albania. They didn't even know what that was. But he, he taught me to work out and it ended up being what you just said, even though that's not his intentions. It, it saved my life but being in, a, in the shape I was in when I was getting stabbed up myself and, and uh, baseball batted myself and shot myself. And so those things did help me and it also helped me with stress. And now over the years, I started working out continue because of the stress factor, not so much physical, but the mind. And I talk about that still to today, that if you want to be uh, strong, you got to be mentally strong. And, you know, there's times like anybody else, I was very weak mentally and I try to overcome it. Um, I think that's just your up and downs as human nature over the years, uh, no matter what your job is. Yeah, you're just talking there about being stabbed and batted and shot. You know, did you wake up every day thinking, say it could be the day someone could take me out? Now, nah, it's like anything else. Uh, you know, I've said this too. People walk out of the house and get hit by a bus. They get into a car accident. Uh, they drink themselves to death. When they're sad, they don't realize their liver could shut down. There's a million ways you can die. I don't think anybody really thinks about that. Well, some people do. I mean, you look at the pandemic and you got people still wearing masks. And I just want to ask them that question every time I say it. You know, was, you know, you're not afraid to get in a car and you get a million point four people die a year of car accidents. Right. So you're talking about a fraction of any of this. 
how long are you going to wear that mask for? I mean, so, and, and really that mask doesn't do much for you. Everybody knows that at this point, but yet they wear it. And so you were never worried that the boss or, you know, one of the old bosses would, or a rival would send someone to kill you? No, I, I never lived my life that way. If that comes, it comes. Um, I understand it. I mean, I, I took the odds down of, of how easy it would be for somebody to kill me because I understand the idea of the Italian mafia. Most of these guys sneak you. They get you on their lap. And, and so I kept a very tight circle of people that wouldn't be able to get in cars with me, come with me. I didn't give them where I was going. I'd set up locations for meeting on my time. So a lot of that I, I took into consideration, although, you know, I got lucky on occasions also where uh, it would have happened if I showed up and just coincidentally I didn't for different reasons. Are you worried about it at all today? No, I smile at that one. You know, I was a guy that was very active and, uh, you know, you'll, got, you'll constantly get guys talking nonsense on computers these days and social uh, statuses, but uh most of these guys not what people think didn't do work back then now that this technology the way it is they don't do work now especially so uh i don't think they have it in them the same way of course there's a couple of guys that do but unless they have a direct problem with me over the years they're not going to put themselves out there and one of the reasons is they don't technology the other is if they're not successful uh they know i was very good at what i used to do um they don't know if i'd come back and do that again for those listening to us live, I encourage you to watch our video when it's posted tomorrow. Because when I just asked John that question, if he was concerned, Big Cheshire Cat smiles saying, no, I ain't afraid. So I just encourage you to see that. John, you spent nearly 20 years in prison. As far as your time incarcerated in the United States, was it all in the same prison or different prisons or different sentences? No, they were different sentences. Since I'm a kid, I've been, I've been in every prison around uh, all the county jails from New York, Queens House. Nassau County, Rikers, uh, Camden County in Jersey, Mays Landing in Atlantic County. I, I mean, I've been to all these county places. I've been in the upstate jails and uh, state, uh, mostly federal facilities here in the United States. Um, and then in Brazil, I was in three prisons also when I was on the run. So I've been in probably, I don't know, 20, 30 prisons, something like that, maybe better. So tell us about your time in the prison in Brazil. How much time did you spend there? How did you get there? I was on the run for an indictment that was coming down here in the United States against me. I got information that there was going to be indictment against me and uh, RICO cases. And I took off on a run and I was in over 20 countries. I bounced around from countries like Cuba and Venezuela and Colombia, Africa. And I ended up in Brazil eventually. And uh, I had some hooks there and I had some family there. And uh, I got caught on the street by Interpol and the army. Uh, I was walking and heard helicopters above. I seen some fast moving uh, tanks coming at me uh, with the army behind them. It was silence in the street. And next thing I know, I had machine guns and snipers and everybody else on me. And uh, that was it. That was the start of me in a, one of the worst Brazilian penitentiaries in their country. Later on, uh, called Bangu 2, before that, Ari Franco. Um, and in Bangu 2, I was the first inmate ever in the United States, so I, I believe any country that was in their penitentiary not charged with a crime in that country. Um, they perceived me as very dangerous as an Interpol 
uh, head of Interpol does a, a video about me being the most dangerous guy from the mob that they ever caught in their country at the time. So um, they posted that, which didn't help my my position in those jails as far as the guards and people want to come after me. And how would you compare the Brazilian prisons to U.S. prisons and life as an inmate in both? I mean, prisons, prison, don't get me wrong, when you can't leave and you can't have your freedoms, it's prison. But the Brazilian prisons are at another level. Anybody that's from those countries understand you go to the bathroom in a hole in the floor and there's rats, uh, there's the, the grid of electric, it's out constantly. You're below, uh, uh, sub-below in the basement. It's hard to breathe down there. Or the air quality is terrible. It rains inside. Uh, you sleep in with 60-something guys in a 12-man cell. I could go on in the violence of machetes and guns and are basically run by the inmates, not the, not the guards. They don't, they fear coming in also. Killing is uh, rampant in those facilities. Uh, the, uh, the wardens are killing each other also because uh, when you get into position in those positions in Brazil, they split the incomes that are coming in with the regime of that regime, whatever political party they're in. So you're talking about big money for them too. So the whole system is, is really screwed. In each prison setting, were you treated differently because of who you were or were you treated like any other inmate? No, you're definitely treated uh, different because of who you are. There's always a fear factor and then there's always challenges. So you get both. Um, but if you're a street guy and you're sur- you, know, you know how to survive, in jail, you get violent too. It's like anything else. We put a crew of guys together. Actually, they did a four-part series about me and my partner, Klaus, from Denmark, um, about the Brazil situation. It was his life story. I was a co-star in it, and uh, we did a four-part series. We're doing a second four. And we discuss, well, the movie discussed a documentary hybrid where we play ourselves and actors play us. Uh, the, the situation, the dangers in there, the killings, the people who got their heads uh, decapitated while we were there and so many other situations we went through while we were there. Was it odd as you transitioned from your former life into your current life and you're doing you know, these TV roles and series and things like that, was it weird playing yourself? No, you, you know what? I think that, again, it's a lifetime ago for me where I think about my past and I've made so many transitions in my life from poverty to being very wealthy, to being in poverty, to being locked up in solitary confinement cells for years, to coming back out and working regular jobs. I think I learned how to adjust myself up and down no matter what and be able to survive that. And I think that was something I worked on mentally with help of some uh, good friends, uh, that friends like uh, my Dr. Genter Toscazi now, who's a uh, a neurosurgeon, a really good friend of mine, and uh, some other good friends of mine, uh, Jimmy Petrowski, another guy that uh, recently we got very friendly. He also lost his daughter, like I did, to uh, um, drugs and my daughter, fentanyl murder. So uh, our relations are positive people around me now. As intriguing as your past life is, you're obviously a changed man. I want to spend a lot of time together focused on that and also on the positive lessons we can learn from you both your previous life and your current one. Our show Next Step Forward is about mental health and emotional well-being. You had to be under constant, incredible stress, wondering if the cops were going to arrest you, not knowing who you could trust, always looking at the possibility that someone might kill you for revenge or to keep you from talking. 
We talked about you working out before. You know, how else did you cope with that stress? Well, you know, in jail, I wanted to believe in God. I've always had, uh, you know, most people find God in prison because they can't do the time and they're struggling. And, you know, uh, that's, you know, a positive thing if they can. I just couldn't. Um, now I, I've became very faithful. Um, I'm Catholic. I, I go to church on a regular basis. But I think I, I dealt with it through, besides exercise, I had a reading, uh, therapy my whole life, uh, more intense therapy when I came home. Um, the idea to humble myself and tell myself that I deserve a life. After reading, I read a lot of books, psychological books, Power of the Mind. I read different books and uh, I tried uh, a lot of uh, different things, not so much yoga, but meditating. Uh, different things to work on my mind, like you work on your body. And I think in combination, the biggest thing I tell kids when I do these talks at colleges or, re, uh, you know, second chance programs or academies with the police is you got to really look at yourself and say, I like myself more than I hate that guy I want to hurt. And I deserve a life and uh, turn the other way and walk away from the negative people because you're going to, you're going to deal with them day and night. You got to be able to accept them in your lives and, shut down your ego and say, uh, I got to be an example. Some kids, I did some bad things. Let me do some good things and end my life in a good note in a positive way. So I look at it that way. I can't change my past. Um, and I just try to move forward. We've been talking to John A. Light and we'll be right back after a short break. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The White House Doctor Makes House Calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. If you're struggling to understand your self-worth or deal with mental health challenges, you will want to tune into Your Life Matters Today with Dr. Cliff Robertson. Dr. Cliff and his guests will help you understand and work toward what you need to build your best life. Your Life Matters Today. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's one 888 
346-9141 or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. My guest today is John Alight. John is an ex-mafia enforcer for Gotti's Gambino crime family. He's also an author, actor, political commentator, and youth advocate speaker. John, you said if we don't take responsibility for our lives, we're never going to move forward in life. When did you decide that and start to change, and how difficult was it to change your life? Well, I was really angry when I decided to change my life. I was in uh, Brazil penitentiaries and two crime families, the Gambino crime family and the Banano crime family. The bosses all the way down to captains, made guys, associates, they were all flipping on me. They were all give, giving information against me while I deserted my family. I lost, I left my millions in my nightclub and parking companies and, and I rotted away in those penitentiaries, uh, surviving, stabbing people in those jails where I was there to survive. And I get messages and paperwork and newspaper articles that the bosses of both these families are sitting down with the government, uh, giving information and cooperating. And not just them, their underlings and their captains. They were all throwing me under the bus. Uh, when I came back home to Florida is where I, my case came out of. Uh, and I got the paperwork on all the guys. I uh, turned around and said, okay, now they can go fuck themselves, these guys. They betrayed me, um, and they're done now. And I was very aggressive about it. So when I started talking, uh, I sent you some paperwork. On uh, They started blaming me for all the murders and shootings and baseball battings for me and Gotti Sr. In, uh, in the paperwork. So I started reading papers on you know, these kind of things. And then Gotti Sr.'s wife did a, did a, a YouTube recently called me a serial killer and different things. And so I'm watching them uh, use it. They're on both sides. They want to talk about this guy's nobody. And at the same time, they want to call me the enforcer during the trials and during the paperwork of everybody's debriefings. So they can't choose a, a side they want to be on. I just talk straight. They don't know how to handle me because of the way I talk and I don't hide. I move right back into New York to my neighborhood, uh, to the same areas. I frequent everywhere from every borough, every club, every bar. I drive convertibles and uh, I basically put myself out there and I tell everybody, you guys are full of shit. You just want to con these kids into believing what you say. And then I talk about stats on a baseball card, on a football card, in the back of the card. These guys got no stats. They talk this nonsense now because I'm not out there doing what I used to do. So I, I try to bring this to the forefront for kids to understand. Yeah, you know, let one of those guys that claim that at these tough guys and uh, sit down with me and, and get in front of me on a television show. I ain't going to kill you anymore, but uh, I'll verbally abuse you. I'll show that you ain't about anything. If most of you guys didn't even own a gun. Forget about a bullet or anything else. Uh, they never got hurt or any other thing because they don't put themselves out there the way I did. And they didn't do the work I did. So, you know, I'm very by name when people say, ah, this guy's full of shit. And then I throw out names and I say, you know, I killed this guy, Ricky Stratton. I shot him in the head a couple of times on the Interborough Parkway. Uh, his brother-in-law, Georgie Grasso, I shot him in the head a couple of times. And I left him by the old Shea Stadium, uh, City Field. 
I had my cousin kill his other brother-in-law, Johnny Gebbett, for uh, gang raping a girl and shooting one of my friends. Um, we left him in the street. He got shot four or five times. Uh, we got another guy, Bruce, that was another brother-in-law does, and we killed him on the beach. So I can go through the names of people I personally shot, killed, and, and, and did this. And I don't like to do it uh, because I'm not that guy anymore. But at the same time, kids got to know who's real, who isn't. Don't listen to these guys. That nonsense in The Godfather and Goodfellas uh, about Jimmy Burke. I was best friends with his son, Frankie Burke. He got shot in the head five times. And uh, I'm the one that brought the message to the family. I'm the one that went to the Kings County Hospital to identify the body with his sister. And I'm the guy that uh, was out there doing this kind of work while these guys were home sleeping, telling you they're gangsters. No different than Sammy Gravano. And people say to me, uh, do you like him? I really wasn't friendly with him back then. I was John Gotti, senior's guy, not Sammy's. But Sammy is one of those guys. He tells everybody how good he is at killing 19 murders. But he's a complete fraud, hides in Arizona. He did one shooting himself. And nobody asked him these questions. Well, if you're such a big shooter, what are you hiding in Arizona for? And, you know, and if you're, you're an old man, but I'm not no young guy either. But you're, you're that shooter. You're that tough guy. You're that gangster that says you're a mob guy to the end. You believe that bullshit? Then why are you hiding? And why don't you tell everybody specifically where you were on each one of these occasions and these shootings? Because I can do that. So he'll never sit with me either. I'll abuse the shit out of him. I just so, you know, and I do it because I'm, very aggressive because I'm trying to save kids' lives, not to buy into. This isn't the godfather. There is no loyalty. It's all treachery. Everybody's deceiving each other. They'll rob your money. They'll rob your wife. Uh, they hide. They shoot you in the back of the head with no balls to come up front and come after you. They're only tough when there's five or ten of them. So, yeah, I'm aggressive because I'm a single guy talking against all of them. And uh, I don't just talk it. I walk it. So when these guys tell you, and I'm not out there going after them, I'm just telling the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. Uh, I joke. I say I'm the Donald Trump of the mafia. I diminish their bullshit, and I put them all out there that uh, these guys are only tough if they run into you with seven guys. Let's see one of them come get busy. Let's see one of them, you know, do something besides talking. And I go through names. Pete Gotti became a boss of the Gambino family. He never used a gun once in his life. Jackie, you know, he's a nice guy, too. Never used a gun once in his life. Mikey Scars, I like him, too. He's a captain. He's all over these shows. Never used a gun in his life. So I could go through these guys. One after another, none of these guys are, are shooting guns, so they're, but they're trying to recruit kids to believe this. And they're trying to recruit kids to do their baseball batting and stabbing and bidding for them. You know, and this is the, the cowardness of these guys because they don't want to manipulate their own sons, but they want to manipulate other kids. So I talk openly. I have a son in prison. I begged him not to get down in the streets and this and that. And I think he learned his lesson by now. But, you know, I'm out there telling the truth. I don't want my kids in this life. I don't want any kid in this life. Uh, there's so many ways you can make money. You don't need to do this. This is selling your soul like I did. And you're going to pay a price like I do for the rest of my life, even though I changed my life and I changed my life, not for a year or two, my life's changed for about 15 years now going up 15. So, excuse me. So when I'm talking about this, I still pay a price because I have a son in jail. I lost the daughter for people that don't know the fentanyl murder. 
I've, and these things I believe wouldn't have happened if I was home. I have people are constantly challenging me that I got to accept it because I don't want to do what I used to do. And they know that. And, and some of the struggles of life of not being able to sleep psychologically, what we talked about, how do you get through it uh, is trying to do good. So I can, I can forgive myself for my past, which is not an easy thing to do. Make, and make sure that you're helping kids on a regular basis and people, not just kids, adults, anybody to show that if I can do it, you can do it. If I'm able to, to continue my life and be successful in a good way, you can do it too. I'm no stronger than you. You mentioned before the break and just now your daughter, Chelsea, petrified of fentanyl and she was murdered by it. Can you tell us how that happened, please? My daughter lived with me. Uh, she had a five-year-old son. She went down to Florida, Sarasota, to visit her mother for her birthday. Uh, I look at the picture every time, and I have it on my Instagram. The night before, she celebrated her 30th birthday with her friends and my grandson. And uh, I called her several times. We talked. We laughed. She was coming home the next day. Um, she woke up at 9.30 in the morning. She texted one of her friends at quarter to 10 in the morning. And... Uh, her flight wasn't until 5. She'd have to be at the airport till 3.30. The baby was still sleeping. She took a Percocet to lay down with the baby for a couple more hours. My daughter didn't sleep well. She would take perks once in a while to relax, which was an ongoing thing. And uh, somebody laced it, crushed it. Uh, and these machines, they have put fentanyl in it, unbeknownst to her. And I was on my way down to Florida. I got... Uh, emergency call early in the morning. I knew it was something serious to get that call that early at 10 in the morning about. And uh, I kept on life support for four days. My friend, the doctor, uh, spoke to me several times. Obviously, I was very emotional and I didn't want to hear it. And we kept her on life support four days. Um, the autopsy report came back, which I knew from my doctor friend that was fentanyl. And the uh, most devastating thing in your life. You can get through anything else that went on in your life. And uh, so I'm in church regularly. I go to the chapel a couple of days a week. And I try to live my life uh, and fight fentanyl also. The awareness. I'm very aggressive against this, this administration that puts no money on saving lives of our kids. Over 100,000 are dying a year. And they donate money and put money behind wars like Ukraine and put money in all kinds of silly places and tell you they don't have the money to fight uh, or close our borders. And for the people that are on the left side and think this is humane, those people that cross the border are being murdered. They're being raped. Their children are being sold. They're being lost. They don't, we don't even know where almost 2,500 kids are. They're being forced to sell drugs and bring drugs in, and then they get locked up here. If they don't do it, they'll kill their families in their country. You're making these cartels billionaires, and they're sleeping on the street. They can't get work visas for four or five years. We're giving them Xboxes and telephones. Meanwhile, we have 44,000 homeless veterans we do nothing for. We have another 125 orphan kids we do nothing for. And we have over 800,000 homeless people in this country already prior to them that we do nothing for. So when someone tells me it's humane, if you want to do something humane, give them the American dream, you're giving them the American nightmare. 
The dream is this. If you really want to do it, pick 300 people a day, process them in the right way, get them jobs, get them employment, get them work visas, know where they're located, and do it that way if this is what you're bent on doing. Then it's humane. These people are living and being separated from their family, their kids, they're being raped. Every, every bad thing that can happen right now is happening. And that's without me talking about the terrorists that are coming into this country that eventually will, will blow something up and kill thousands of people because we don't even know how many came in. They know it was a hundred and something that they know of. How many, how many hundreds of thousands, how many, hundreds more coming here that are possibly going to try to kill thousands of people again. So this is nonsense that this administration is selling. It's not by accident. So I don't like when Fox News or somebody says they're not doing anything about it. They're purposely not doing anything about it. This is intentional. This isn't by accident. And for the people out there, the same thing, and I don't mean to run on, they don't care about gay kids, they don't care about transgender kids, they don't care about black or Spanish or Chinese, they care about power. And I understand as a gangster what they're doing. They're manipulating society, separating society, and divide and conquer, just like Machiavelli, so they can win another election and continue on, and then when they're ready, they'll put the hammer down on everything I just said. So when somebody, when these people wake up and understand this is not, this is, we're all human beings and we should band together and not separate and don't allow them to play this nonsense race game and make everybody hate each other and go after each other. So I'm disgusted what this country is doing. We have so many veterans that lost their lives for this country. That's a great summary of, unfortunately, the sad state of affairs of this nation. So I appreciate your candidacy and insight on that. And I, can't disagree with uh, much of anything that you said there, unfortunately. You know, and you, you highlighted there that you've tried to create some good from the passing of your daughter by speaking out about the dangers of fentanyl. Some people have criticized you and said, you know, why should anyone feel bad for you because you're a former mobster and an ex-drug dealer? But your point to them has been that it isn't about you, is it? I'd love to get those people in a room, see, and, and, and be the old gangster self I was and tell them, listen, you got a big fucking mouth, but this has nothing to do with me. If somebody killed me or somebody gave me fentanyl, you could say, fuck Johnny. That's okay. I accept that. These are innocent kids that are getting killed. A kid that's studying for college and he's taking Adderall and he's dying. A young kid that's going online and getting a, a diet pill, girl or guy from Canada, and they're dying from fentanyl. So the fucking morons that are saying that are too stupid, too ignorant, do nothing positive to help what's going on, but they take cheap shots at me. That This has nothing to do with me. I'm just a guy that has a voice now that's trying to save some lives. I'm not trying to save my own life. I'm trying to save their lives. And if it makes them happy, yeah, I suffer a lot. You know, I suffered a lot in my life. I suffer a lot now. I'm going to suffer to the day I die because I lost my daughter and have a son in jail. And forget about the pain I went through in jail. So I deserved it. But I don't say poor me. All I say is instead of opening your big mouth on a negative way, why don't you save some of these kids' lives? Why don't you help? Why don't you do something positive? So every one of these kids that are, are adults that are out there on the left and when they're watching more and more kids die, why is it that we're sending money to Jordan and these other countries so they can protect their border, but our border isn't protected? So when you ask yourselves, why is it okay that you're allowing police to be attacked and shot at, killed, beat up, and no one's saying anything and you want it to fund the police? Because our whole neighborhood, my neighborhood, I, the inner city, that's who I'm sticking up for. But I don't know anybody in these rich areas in the Hamptons, 
whether it's Don Lemon on CNN, you live in the Hamptons, you got private security, you got gates around your house. Of course, you like to fund the police. I says, you got your own security. But these poor people in my neighborhood don't. Their kids are walking to school, getting hit with straight bullets at five, six, seven years old. Forget about whoever's in the game on their own. But how about the innocent? How about the people who are getting robbed day and night that you call police that tell you I'll be there in two days because we're not funded anymore. We don't have enough police officers. So this is the, but this agenda is intentional and they want the havoc because they want to take the second amendment. And again, these are all mob tactics. That's why I'm way ahead of the game. These are things we did years ago. They're not fooling me with this. They're fooling people that are really naive. Your life has obviously had a bunch of highs and a lot of lows. What were your highest highs and your lowest lows? My highest highs was, uh, me buying real estate everywhere, I guess, estates, million-dollar properties in Voorhees, traveling, cars, money, the treatment of success, right? Even though it's false, you know, you, you, you lie to yourself and say, I made it. I'm this guy that came from nothing. His father was a cab driver, and I'm very successful and well-respected. Complete lie. I bullshitted myself because people bullshitting me. And uh, giving me false attention. And my lowest low, obviously, is uh, losing my daughter, uh, my son in prison, um, and the uh, separation from me and my family all these years that you can't get back. And those are the things, you know, physical pain we can all accept. It's the mental pain and the loss of uh, family. And some of the things that occur while you're not there, when my daughter was graduating or my daughter was going to communion or my daughter would want to dance award or sports or my son the same and my other son's the same. In those days, you never get back. So when people tell me I only did six months in prison and you did almost 20 years, it's six months too much. You're risking your life for what? If you're that smart to be able to hustle the street, trust me, you're not a dummy. You can hustle out here and make a good living the right way. So I try to convey that message on a regular basis. And, and, you know, I am aggressive, even on my messaging, because I'm, I'm not a poor me guy and I don't want people to say poor me because we can live in, in Haiti where there's uh, earthquakes and people are dying and they're living in hearts. You can live in different parts of Cuba, Africa. I traveled the whole world, Venezuela, under communism. So a lot of people that think they have it bad, there's always a lot worse. People that think they have it good, there's always a lot of people that have a lot more. So, you know, that you can't judge your life like that. You got to judge it by your mental capacity to be able to overcome things and move forward. The people ever ask you, how do you live with yourself at the things you've done? And what do you, what do you tell them? You know, I didn't go out and just kill some guy in the street. So I can live with myself because the guys that we killed and guys that hurt me or tried to kill me were guys that we all lined up and we joined the mob uh, for the good and the bad of it. And we can't take that back. I didn't go into a store owner and hurt him or a young kid or pull over in an, an argument in a car or an armored car and go shoot the guy. I never did those things. I kept my stuff to the gangsters. So uh, is it still, I don't justify it, but I can't take it back. I did a show and uh, one of the journalists in Europe still was talking about the guy, Johnny, that we killed that was a gang rapist. But she left that part out saying that I said I'd like to kill him again if I could wake him up again. And the truth is, I'll say it again. 
I got no, I got no heart for the guy. He gang raped a girl with five guys. He beat her half to death. He shot one of my friends. He shot her boyfriend was also a family friend. And uh, he got what he deserved as far as I'm concerned. He was convicted for those rapes and how many others. So when they say to me, uh, who are you? Um, it's the same way I got stabbed up and shot. Um, I'm not complaining. The guys that did it, did it. It was I signed up for that life. If they kill me tomorrow, same thing I tell my kids. Well, even though I'm away from that life, it's, it never gets away from you. So that's just part of it. And there's no way to take that back but to move forward and live a good life. And I, again, I read the Bible. I go to church. And uh, I, I'm forgiven by the most important person in, in, in my world. And that's God, Jesus Christ. And he forgives me. And, uh, and I'm honest about my, my uh, past. And I pray to God to forgive me and move forward in the right way. That's all that's important to me. I can't worry about what everybody thinks about me. Are there any crimes that haunt you? I mean, there's a lot of things you regret. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's one specific crime. It's just the understanding when you're younger that this day is going to come one day and you're going to wake up and say exactly what I've been doing the last 12 and 15 years of uh, trying to erase what I did, which is never going to happen. You'll drive yourself crazy. The only thing you do is live each day as, as a better person. So there's always going to be regrets, but that's my life for the good or bad. And maybe that was God's intention so I could save some kids' lives. And I hope that is it. That was the plan. Um, and uh, the only thing I do is keep, continue doing what I'm doing. Did you have any opportunity or opportunities to get out of the, the crime family before you finally did? Uh, I've always had opportunities. I mean, you can get out. Yeah, I could have took off in different locations. I mean, even now, I won't run. I'm not running. I was betrayed. And I'm glad I was betrayed. I just, you know, they turn it around in the media. I don't care who's right. And I tell people, go read the paperwork. Go get the time frames and see, you know, who was betrayed. I was betrayed and these weak, only weak guys stay together because they need the, the, the confirmation of others. I'm not that guy. I can stand on my own. And uh, I tell people, if you have a brain, Forbes magazine wrote a 30 or 40 page article on it. Uh, uh, Richard Behar about, and he explains exactly part by part by part that I was betrayed. And people can go get that article and go get the paperwork and see where, but I'm glad they betrayed me because it gave me the opportunity to, to get away from that life and change. It. That woke me up from that belief of that nonsense I believed in. The whole concept or maybe myth to you about the mafia family is exactly that, that it's a family. How true is that notion? And has it changed over time? It's so fucking laughable. You know, the, the, these, first off, these guys here never even been to Europe. These guys here, three quarters of them never left their neighborhood. I've probably been in 40 countries already. I understand the mentality from the European mob to the cartels because I was with them to the Mexican mafia, I understand all this, MS-13. I know guys that were the leadership in these places. My friend was the boss in Denmark. I know the boss of Greece. So I understand the mentality around the world. And this, the last thing that is so laughable is just go through the history. All the bosses ratted. Albert Anastasia, the biggest gangster of gangsters for people that know, gave up his best friend, Lepke. Why didn't everybody call him a rat? He was a rat. Gave up his best friend. 
he was involved with murder rink and when the police put pressure on him because reels went out a hotel window albert anastasia was a rat lucky luciano was a rat he sold drugs as a kid and he became an informant and then his excuse was well I was only young then so the, the problem with the mob is this there is they're all liars joe messina's wearing a wire these are the bosses what loyalty what family the family is you're only their family as long as you're making the money, as long as you could do something for them, you kill for them, you protect them. They use that and then they build their own name off your name, off your sweat, tears, and incarceration. And they all give you up. You have a website where you sell autographed copies of your books and other memorabilia. How can people find it? And is there a group of people who are, you know, for lack of a better phrase, mafia aficionados or hobbyists? My website is uh, www.johnalight.com. My Instagram is my name, at John A. Light. And uh, you got a lot of people that buy memorabilia from me. I, I sell baseball bats. They're very popular. And people think it's because of my batted people. But I was a, a college ball player. I was a high school, four-year uh, varsity team ball player. Thirty years, I was a captain of the team. Um and yeah, I guess some people buy the bats because they think, well, he buys well bad people too. I mean, I can't get in people's minds why they're buying them and not buying them or their autographs, but it's probably my biggest seller. Sunglasses I sell and photos like everybody else. And I'm an entrepreneur since I'm a kid. I owned a lot of nightclubs. I own parking companies, glass companies. So, uh, you know, this is just another way of doing the right thing and, and earning money. And if people like me and they and they they like to help and or they they want memorabilia, it's it's there. If they choose not to, if they don't like what I have to say, I get that too. I can't make everybody like me. That's you know that's people's egos when they want everybody to like them. No matter what, you're not going to get everybody. And I'll go back to Jesus Christ. I just uh, they they hung them on a stake. They stayed to a stake. They killed them. And uh, there's no more love than than that. And uh, they still didn't like them. So. I can't force people to, to, uh, to like me. And we just have about a minute or two left here. I want to give a plug for your own podcast with Felix Levine called The Oddest Couple. So those listeners and viewers out there, please make sure you look that up. John Alight, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it. I, no, hope I you get appreciate your time and, and your message. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you to our audience for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details and upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.